This is The Rest is PR with Lyle Fulton and Jackie Vores. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to The Rest is PR. My name, as it will always be, barring instant, is Lyle Fulton, and I'm joined, as I hope I always will be, by the absolutely wonderful Jackie Vores. <laughs> Jackie, we find ourselves, we don't want to date the podcast, but we find oh, ourselves... Well, we're going to, we're going to. We're going to have to, aren't we? We're going to have to, <laughs> because we find ourselves on the slightly more unusual date of recording listeners of Monday morning, Monday morning. So I'm in the slightly unusual situation of being able to ask you how your weekend was. I how know. was your weekend? How did it go? How are you doing this fine Monday morning? What a weekend. What an amazing weekend of sport. Oh, well, yeah. You know, Champions League, triple, yeah. And I, as a Man United fan, yeah. I know that you've been crying into your cups ever since. Yeah, yeah. But I just applaud amazing sportsmanship. And so Alex did it well for all of the Man United fans by sending his own personal message to Pep, which I thought was extremely well done. And um, yeah, so it was brilliant. And then, of course, Novak Djokovic getting his 23rd Grand Slam yesterday, which was amazing. So you can tell I've been spending the weekend hiding from the sun watching sport. It really was, wasn't it? It was a fantastic weekend uh, for sporting achievements from organisations or individuals that people do really quite enjoy disliking uh, <laughs> in the form of uh, Manchester City and, and Novak Djokovic. And, and, you know, let's make one thing clear. I, I extend my enormous congratulations to uh, Manchester City Football Club. I have friends who support Man City for buying, winning uh, the treble. Sorry, sorry, that was a that was a slip. Uh, winning, winning the treble <laughs> and ruining, I mean... Developing football, uh, uh, yes, yeah. um, absolutely. I I went on stage just before. Sorry, no, they full time went, yeah. full time whistle went, and then I went on stage to finish Romeo and Juliet on Saturday night, and it's quite a somber oh, ending. What time is yeah. that? It was ten o'clock, and it was quite a somber, wow, quite a somber final scene. I have to deliver the closing monologue, the you know glooming piece this morning with it brings the sun for sorrow will not show his head, and it's the saddest I've been delivering that monologue. Because um, Man City won the treble, I was harnessing the <laughs> sorrow that was my arch rivals winning such an extraordinary uh, competition. But there you are, congratulations, Manchester City. And I'm, you know, in, in an unusual sort of thing for me. I'm struggling to find a segue here because I'm so, I'm so defeated. No, no, we can say what we do like. Go on. Is the wonderful guy. Clapton. Ah, there you go. What be again? Proud of you. A beautiful segue. So <laughs> things from things that I disliked over the weekend to something that I am. Um, extraordinarily excited about because we are joined this by another fantastic guest this morning we are joined by the brilliant guy clapperton now guy before i ask you how you are and how your weekend has been and guy said before we went live as well when it comes to the topic we're going to be discussing this morning the worst thing you can do is give someone a build-up so forgive me guy let's do it i'm gonna (laughs) so guy is a media training extraordinaire there's just like no other way to say it Guy, welcome. Guy has been a media trainer for 21 years, since 2002, and he has his own company. He's the founder, owner, and media trainer at Clapperton Media Associates, which has been in existence since 2015. He's got over 30 years experience in the press industry, and he also offers some practical sessions remotely when it comes to media training, as well as in person. He's also an event MC, a keynote speaker, a podcaster in his own right. So I feel a bit under pressure this morning as well. And he's also previously been deputy news editor for Microscope and managing editor for the Intelligent Sourcing magazine. There's probably any number of things I've left out there as well, Guy, but first and foremost, how are you this fine Monday morning? And thank you for being on the podcast. 
Thanks very much indeed, Lyle. Basically, at this Monday morning, I'm reeling from having Romeo and Juliet spoiled. Um, I now know how it ends. I'm very upset about that. I've been wanting to see that play since I was about five. I'm now 58, and you've ruined it. Ruined it, you have. It's I hope I had some. I apologize. Demolished. Next thing, you'll be telling me Hamlet doesn't make it out of the end. I don't want to spoil we'll, that. I won't spoil we'll, we'll leave that my own private hell uh, to one side. I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Good, thank you. Yeah, lovely. Yeah, feeling very good this Monday morning. Delighted actually to be um to be sort of doing the podcast like sort of first thing on a Monday. Quite often we kind of you know are retrospective in terms of our week on a Friday afternoon, but it feels like yeah we're going to get going. And I look forward to kind of having this episode and other episodes besides as well to kind of edit as we head into the week. But tell us a little bit about yourself first and foremost, guys, because I think I've given Just you. Say, my, my daughter's also going into the arts. She's going to opera singing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I can I, I can see this. I can see the look on your face here because you know for listeners' benefit we've got the cameras. On. And it's sort of, is this what a morning looks like? Wow, I, you know, <laughs> because That's they so keep true. very late hours, everybody. It's not because they're idle. That's the thing about, you know, you, you finish, then you wrap up and. You've yeah. defended me very well there, might I say. You've actually done an extraordinarily good job of defending me because actually, my parents in particular are like, why are you calling me at 10 a.m.? I thought actors don't exist before midday. And I'm like, Look, I wasn't defending it. I know nothing about you. I was defending my daughter. That's a different thing anyway, yeah, but you can tell I'm a media trainer. What was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> well, here we go. This is it. A fantastic segue from yourself. You're a media trainer and have been for a number of years. So tell us a little bit about your career today. We love to do this with our guests. So we'll just give us a bit of a kind of checkered history of like kind of your career so far. It's how you definitely came to... been checkered, yes. Potted, sorry, potted. Is... I'm not media trained. I'm not me. Okay? <laughs> I'd never guess. Uh, so... go. go for okay, it. Yeah, sure. crack yeah, on. Yeah. Um, and we're back in the room. Yeah, I uh, started as a journalist doing little bits and pieces of freelancing in uh, 1988 and then just went through the uh, 87. Sorry, then I went through the Guardian every uh, Monday morning. There used to be the media Guardian would come out just applying to about five jobs a week that might get me into journalism if I was very lucky. I was at the time working as a uh, administrator of a local charity just because I got that job. So my first job out of college discovered I was not a very good administrator. I eventually landed a staff job at Microscope, which is a trade publication that went to computer dealers only. So we wouldn't be so interested in the bits and bytes of a computer. We'd be interested in uh, how much promotional budget the uh, company was putting behind it, how much percentage was available to dealers, etc. Uh, rose to deputy news editor, got freelanced in the 1993 recession. I think for a while I'd been a square peg in an increasingly round hole all the other way around. Uh, there'd been personnel changes. I wasn't quite au fait with the way the publication or quite in line with the way the publication was moving it was moving very successfully that just doesn't mean that I was the right person for it and so I went freelance and um, realized very quickly that I was enjoying life more earning a little better not having the commute and because the, the big treat about thing about being freelance is because you're not in everybody else's office politics when you do turn up no matter how vile you are, you're basically the treat because you're the break from the norm and you're not involved in everybody else's office politics and who sits nearest the window and all that. I sort of, you know, don't like that person's aftershave or whatever. It was the <laughs> 80s and 90s. So <laughs> took the decision quite quickly that I was going to aim for the national papers rather than the computer press, just because the there were so many computer publications. I thought the bottom was going to fall out of that market. And it kind of did over a period of time. There's a lot of technology publications around that you don't get go into WH Smith's and get a whole wall of them now. Of course, that wall is now virtual and it's on the internet, but that's another thing that's changed. 
2001, getting to the uh, bit that you're going to be really interested in, 2001, the phone goes, and uh, it's uh, a client I can name, many of them are confidential, but it was at Microsoft's public relations, so they said, do you by any chance offer media training? And I just received a bank statement, and I thought, oh yes, yes, that sounds <laughs> I <me>. do. <laughs> Absolutely, what's media training? Um, cut a long story <laughs> short, I'm still in touch with the guy media trained in 2002, and uh, even if only on social media, and I've found increasingly as I get more and more mature we're all trying to stop saying older aren't we uh, but I, as I get more and more mature in the game I prefer to be the person who leaves the room with that uh, client feeling more comfortable about what they're doing rather than leave them worried sick about what they might have said to the journalist what might get misinterpreted and uh, you know I try to get people out of the idea that the journalist is going to trash them deliberately yeah. uh, because very few journalists are going to do that it really isn't a massive thing so, you know, I've, I've continued to build on that. And uh, sometime in the middle of the last decade, I had a look at the accounts and realized that I'd become more of a trainer than um, a journalist. So I thought, well, let's go for it because I'm really enjoying that. There are some journalists and media trainers who uh, actually have said things like uh, to me, like, you know, if someone does more training, that's, a, that's just a weird thing. Or if they become a full time trainer, that's a weird thing. It's a change of job is what it is. It's not that dramatic it's yeah. uh, you know, lots of people change jobs but uh, for some reason some journalists think it's uh, or one or two other journalists stroke trainers i've met think it's a article of faith <laughs> which i've never really accepted i mean I, I think there's so much to unpack there and i think it's brilliant that as well i mean yeah it was quite long i agree no yeah. no 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 but i love i i loved it and i thought i was doing media training here that, that's it yeah, cut your, you answers, go, cut yeah. your answers give me <laughs> one thing to remember rather than a thousand things i'll forget it's Let's start with that, though, because that's really interesting. I mean, do you find yourself starting to kind of adopt strategies you teach others in your <laughs> own work? I mean, that this is this is a question, by the way, that I've not prepared. So all of a sudden, already, in terms of media trading stuff, it's like, no, these questions weren't in the thing I sent across to you. But I'm just really intrigued. Do you start you kind of like... You, you can ask me whatever you wish. Um, I, that I believe passionately that uh, you shouldn't, as an interviewee, try to dictate what somebody asks you. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I do a bit because it does occur to me sometimes when I'm sitting there telling people to do their research to uh, uh, make sure that they cut things down to what something that the audience is going to be able to take away rather than try and pack 30 years experience into a 45 minute podcast or interview or whatever. No, that's just going to be overloaded and that's going to be bombarded. And it's not the only thing people are going to have heard that day. They're going to have heard all sorts of other things, read all sorts of other things. So if you can leave people with two or three things that are worth taking away, rather than, I mean, that first question was for background, but, uh, you know, rather than trying to pack absolutely everything in, it comes from the human uh, wish to help. I always say to people, there's an experiment they can do if they happen to be in London, go to Parliament Square. Uh, it's quite lively there at the moment, I believe. <laughs> go to Parliament Square and ask somebody the time. They will either get their phone out or look at their watch. They will not tell you that you're standing under the single most accurate uh, uh, clock <laughs> in the whole of the British Isles. Just because, or they might point to it, if you, uh, and you know, they won't be nasty about it because our instinct is just to help. So you ask me a question about, you know, what have you been doing the last 30 years? I'm quite likely to you know, just instinctively try and tell you from, I, mean, I started in 1988, for goodness sake, just there. <laughs> and, um, but, uh, you know, it, it is a matter of just sorting out what people are going to take away, what's going to be of value. So I shall start to behave from now on. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. No. And it's, it's actually really interesting. It segues quite nicely onto a question that I did prepare and I wanted to ask you as well, which is obviously your instinct as a media trainer is to help your clients you know, navigate their way through an interview situation, be that in print, be that in broadcasts or TV, radio and what have you. 
Jackie and I recently, as we said before we went live, have kind of been addressing the whole Holly Willoughby, Phil Schofield. I suppose furore is the word we've used. You could use the word scandal. You could use anything like that. How has it adapted, like the landscape of media training in what is now kind of an attention economy, which we've also discussed, Jackie and I, where one imagines when you were starting out sort of offering media training to clients you had first thing sort of 20 or so years ago, fast forward 20 years to now, everything is so much more bite-sized. You even made reference to it, you know, this podcast won't be the only thing people listen to today. And you need to be able to sort of train people, not only to be able to navigate their way through some slightly tricky situations at times when it comes to interviews and, and things like that, but also do it in a snappy and informative way. I mean, how has it changed and how has your approach changed alongside how the industry's changed? Oh, good question. Blimey. Thank you, Jackie. I've <laughs> got Jackie fighting my corner, but I'll take it because I... <laughs> Because I'm a hero. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I, I think the basic uh, idea hasn't changed. In the, the, the simple dynamic that I come across time and time again is people go into an interview, the interviewee goes into an interview, they think they've got to answer everything the journalist says because they think the journalist has some sort of authority, they think they have some sort of expertise and they know what their readers will want to know. Sometimes that will be true. Of course it will. There are some excellent journalists, there are some really good specialists out there. Often, what you will find is there will be someone who's more like I was when I was in the tech press. The expertise is in interviewing, it's in writing, it's in getting stories out of people. And I might not know the question that's going to get the answer that's going to be more helpful, uh, most helpful to the um, to the readers, to the listeners, to, the, to, to that audience. So it's a matter of trying to build people up so they've got that confidence uh, that they are the expert, and then that they understand how to deliver that message uh, and their expertise and share their expertise most efficiently, which tends to involve a bit of humility and understanding that not everybody is an expert. And uh, that doesn't mean that you know, the fact that you happen to be an expert in your particular field, it's effectively a coincidence of employment. So, you know, you don't start judging people for not knowing, but uh, you, you, you can share things and you can put your own agenda out there because in no other business conversation would you expect not to be um, putting your agenda out there. Your question was about what's changed. And of course, it's the, really, it's the competition. And the fact that uh, you need to be aware that you might be, if someone records you on their phone or something and say, can I just use the phone to record, that can now be shared instantly. So it's the immediacy, it's, it's the swiftness. I think the people who we look at particularly in the media are less remote than they were which is how I mean, i'm not comparing the one case to the other but it's how sort of certain high profile people in the 1970s 80s were guilty of phenomenal amounts of abuse and uh, i'm not suggesting that that same is true of philip schofield but he's more accessible you know he was on twitter he's, he no longer is so it's it was easier to get to him easier to find him easier to get him personally and i think that does have an effect on people's mental health not really sure where I'm going with this point, but it's a no. It, I think you're right. The the nature of nature of all the channels that people are now utilizing and using to get their message across has really changed, and it's become more of a dialogue than that broadcast mechanism that I recall when. I mean, you and I started in media at exactly the same time. I mean, you were on the editorial side, and I was on the sales side. You're actually in my major competition as well. You were over at Reed and I was at VNU. I so wasn't. We were... I wasn't. It was it was Dennis Publishing at the time. Dennis, of course, yes. Reed Dennis bought Microscope in the late 90s. I was long deceased by that stage. So... 
<laughs> so okay you're at Dennis which is still a big competition good old Felix that's a subject for another podcast but anyway yeah so in those days I felt that when people were doing media and doing their press trips and doing their different types of interviews and press releases and everything else it's very broadcast it was almost like their message had to come across whereas I feel like in these days people need to be mentally prepared for the dialogue would you say that that's a bit different as well with your media? It's completely different. And uh, the one thing that you notice about uh, even the national press, the, the traditional press, the Times, the Telegraph, uh, stuff like that, uh, is uh, it's the comments section. Uh, you um, you yes. know, it's not just the letters page. You go to a, a news item this weekend, uh, just to date the thing even further, is the weekend where Boris Johnson walked out of Parliament on Friday, as did Nadine Dorries. Uh, so, and, of course, it's the comments where it's liveliest. And uh, in... I was going to say in my day, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? But, uh, you know, in my 20s, perhaps, the idea of any comment other than chats in the pub or, you know, jolly well write a letter to the letters page, which still seems to carry some weight. Uh, but, uh, you know, now you just expect there to be screeds on the, the bottom or, or, you know, maybe something will say comments have been turned off in this. And you think, right, someone's been libelous or something has happened there. And uh, then, of course, there's the whole extended discussion, uh, which because it carries on into social media, into Twitter, whatever shape that's in under that nice Mr. Musk, um, <laughs> your Facebook. And then we all start listening in our uh, uh, to our own echo chambers and we still get distorted views of what everybody thinks because everybody, of course, means the nearest people, five people sitting next to you. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, it's, it's interesting that you were saying that about mental health as well and something that you've always touched upon. And I think it's something that I remember you saying very early days, I do remember you setting up your media training operation was about confidence and making people feel confident in what they're saying, especially now because we've got that dialogue. I think you can be very subject to trolls and I think that can stop people wanting to do media. I think that's right. And the other thing is that people think that the journalist is going to have an agenda and the journalist is out to get me. I had an incident once where someone was so nervous uh, they'd put in, been put in front of me for media training in a group of about five people. I don't actually recall uh, which client it was. It was that long ago. But I always ask a warm-up question on camera, uh, which is basically, tell me about yourself or your organisation. Lyle started this off by saying, tell me about your career. It's the same thing. It's a warm-up. You know, you're going to yeah. just get the conversation going, which is fine. So I said to her, tell me about yourself and your organisation. And the answer came back, uh, we've got to switch the camera off. Uh, what, I don't know why, why does he want to know about me? I, I can't do this. What, the, what? What's the point of this? Stop it, stop it, stop it. So I switched the camera off immediately. And the um, uh, that's the cat howling in the background. She's decided it's breakfast time again. I fed her at eight o'clock, I promise. Um, so I, I, I told her that all I really wanted was uh, her name and job title just so that I would make sure I got attributed any quotes correctly. But she had read so much into that. And she she thought, you know, oh, well, he must want something incredible. He wants a confessional. I didn't want to know about her life. I mean, I, I didn't say to her at the time. I think, you know, good God, don't tell me. Don't tell me your whole life story. We'll be here all day. <laughs> but, um, a bit like my first answer, really. For the, in his Not but, at all. Um, yeah, I, um, so you, you have to deal with all those things. And then there's the other people who think who are, who are that confident in their own stuff, they assume everybody shares it in common. All the initials will come out, all the acronyms will come out. Because I deal, I should say, mostly in the commercial space, not in the personality space, not in the political space. Although 
can be touching on politics shortly because I just recruited a, uh, an ex MP as a trainer. But this idea that uh, you know the, uh, the journalists will automatically be an expert in cybersecurity or in audiovisual uh, technology rather than operating it or uh, whatever else you know, double glazing or whatever else you happen to be talking uh, to them about. And actually, the journalist is the expert in interviewing you. And it's, uh, you know, you need to get those points across and you need to get them across sufficiently clearly that they won't be misunderstood and misquoted. Well, let's talk about those points, because one of my big mantras throughout this whole podcast series has been about messaging and really understanding your messages. But you have to kind of go through a process, I feel, before you even get to the messaging of of what you want to say, because you have to almost go backwards into your vision your mission your values what you're all about as an organization about a product about and then from there take your your messages as a media trainer how often do people come along with their messages very clear to them or do you find that mostly you have to help them with the messaging in the first instance I tend to draw the line and say that I'm, I, I can offer them a messaging se- uh, session. I will act as a sanity check against their messaging if they like, but I'm not in their culture. I'm not an employee there. I don't work there full time. It would be supreme arrogance of me to suggest on the basis of having known them for an hour into a session or something that I can now do your messaging. I, I don't, um, I don't hold with that. I will help with messaging. I'll be the external critical friend if, uh, uh, if they need that. Yeah. That's absolutely fine. Very happy to do that. But uh, in terms of actually advising them on the messaging, there are a few basics. I always advise people to try and be consistent. I once went to a launch of a watch, which was um, just a nice lunch. I thought I'd go and I ended up getting a free watch, which was helpful. Uh, but this, um, uh, this uh, company had started to have its manufacturing done in Switzerland instead of Hong Kong. And I said to the sales director, why is that? And he said, oh, well, it's because people love Swiss watches. They think they're so precise and they're things of beauty. The engineering is, there's nothing like a Swiss watch. And our customers love Swiss watches. And we're honored to be able to offer them a genuine Swiss watch. I sauntered over to the managing director and said, so why have you done this, made this move into uh, manufacturing in Switzerland? And he said, oh, well, some people want a Swiss watch. If they want to spend an extra 10 quid on a Swiss watch, they can spend an extra 10 quid on a Swiss watch. If it's got my name on it, it's going to be a quality watch. I don't care whether it's Chinese hands or Swiss hands putting it together. But if they want a Swiss watch, they must have one. Either of those could be correct. <laughs> Lyle has his head in his hands now, by the way. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I, I've got a very strong view on which one of those I believed. But it was, they hadn't had the conversation beforehand. And, you know, what if we get the obvious question? And it, it would not have been a harmful deception or anything. I'm, I'm not a believer in telling people to deceive uh, listeners. But getting the, those messages consistent is good. Getting them prioritised is good. And ironically, not overthinking them as well is always a help. My first ever client, uh, I, it was uh, Microsoft, as I mentioned, and I'd asked the guy, uh, sort of, what, why do we have to keep upgrading our systems? You know, you spend your money on something. It was fairly early in the, uh, mm-hmm. in the age of uh, home computing. And then you suddenly have to upgrade it a year later. You, you it's a nightmare. And, yeah. You know, when they're software upgrading in those days, you had to buy a new kit. You had exactly. to upgrade your exactly. RAM. You had to do all these different things. So I asked him why that was. And he, he was um, an ex-military man. And he starts saying, oh, well, um, because I'm uh, Outlook and work groups and, uh, you know, people uh, work groups and, um, you know, people have to do these things at work. And it's uh, we've been developing Outlook. So he stopped the interview and I said, look, what are you trying to say? He said, what I'm trying to say is there's people out there working their backsides off to try and make your life easier and to make collaborating easier so that you don't even notice the computer. And no, we can't 
can't do that with last year's equipment. And I thought, right, there's your quote. <laughs> and the great <laughs> thing is, the great thing is you mean it, but you're overthinking. You think you have to formalize this somehow. When actually, as long as you're not going to swear or something silly, and you know, some people say, why not? But you know, if you're on behalf of a major corporation, probably not a good idea. You know, j- just speak your mind. Don't overthink. And, you know uh, what? What you're playing into there is something else I was going to ask you about. Was do people feel they have to act a part? Oh yeah. Uh, because I totally feel like if you're your authentic self and feel confident in your authentic self, you're going to answer any questions much better. That's true, and it's much easier for you and I as independents, or uh, you know, heads of our own businesses, or something like that, because we get that privilege. Um, if you're there, uh, if you were Jackie Vores uh, on behalf of Microsoft, or on behalf of IBM, or something else like that, then you might find that you were, felt a little more constrained. So I have some sympathy with that. That wasn't me, everybody. I got all my <laughs> deny everything. <laughs> Media training one hundred and one. Switch that damn things up. Yeah. So, um, but yes, I once was out uh, at a favourite client in Kingston, a PR company, and they had a client in there. They wanted me to media train, and he was a pretty headstrong young man. He was about 25 years old, and he'd managed to make a company that was turning over about $7 million or something like that, very profitably. But one of the things he said to me, he appeared headstrong, but then one of the things he said to me was, what sort of personality should I try to adopt? Mm-hmm. And I thought, um, what, hello, what, um, c- 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 and, uh, huh? <laughs> was b- the, the broad, co- he said, what, what he said was that he didn't imagine that uh, all these people in the city or whatever would want to hear from this uh, 25-year-old who just made this massive company. They would want to hear from somebody who's a bit wiser, you know, should he uh, effectively try and sound older or wiser? And I had to try and persuade him that the the unique thing he had was that he was this 25-year-old who built this thing from nothing. And, you know, be proud of it. Don't be arrogant, by all means, but be proud of it. Do not try and present uh, you're something otherwise, because that was quite a remarkable achievement. But yeah, I think people do try and put roles on. We all do it in life anyway. I mean, when I was you know, 20 years ago, and my, my daughter was three years old, it may surprise you to hear I was different with uh, with her from where I was uh, to at work with PR people. I, I, I never attempted to change their nappies even once. <laughs> <laughs> so we, I mean, we all adopt these different personas. But, uh, you know, I, appropriately so. And I, I, I don't think pretending to be something you're not is ever going to help. It's like the old thing about, uh, you know, whether you should be honest or dishonest. Never mind the ethics. It's the admin. Yeah. <laughs> Which fib was I told to such and such? And yeah. how do I, you know, make sure that I don't contradict that in this interview or that interview? Or, you know, where do I go with that? Do you find that's like almost the hardest? I mean, there's there's a kind of a mantra in performance in, in the acting world, which is kind of where my kind of expertise originally lies before I obviously got in. Yeah, but you tell them how the play ends before they go and seen it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Spoilers are, yeah. are, my, are my expertise. Anybody which I... missed the beginning of this show is going to be <laughs> You'll have to go back and listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a mantra, which is that actually, you know, and directors I've worked with in the past will say, right, go big. And then because it's far easier to bring something down if you give us big, bold choices than it is for you to come in at like a plateau and then we have to kind of build and build and build. And what strikes me is, and maybe this is a bit sweeping, is that it's arguably the opposite for yourself, is that actually some clients or prospective clients come to you with huge pie-in-the-sky ideas about, you know, roles they want to play and big, bold statements they want to make. And your job is to go, 
let's just strip all this back and like what is it that you actually mean and what is it that you actually want to say how difficult is that and what are like the strategies that you use specifically to kind of start to week out the authenticity of your clients I mean how do you go about don't obviously give things away because people should absolutely go and check you out but like don't don't give away the magic but but you know what what, what sort of you know mechanisms do you do you kind of put in place it's going to be different for everybody but really it is a matter of just trying to it's redirecting that energy and uh, trying to give them some insights into the way that journalists are going to work you know you talk to me you try and get stories out of them uh, and they may not realize they've actually got a particular story years ago i was working with one company that uh, worked on data compression which sounds thrilling, I know. But uh, one of the things they'd done was they, they they were talking about all these various bits and bytes and things like that. And I was, you know, I'd, I'd sworn I had the will to live when I walked into that office. But uh, And um, then I was saying, well, are there any practical applications? And they said, oh, there's a few, yeah. So, and they were talking about people uh, being able to buy smaller computers and things like that. And I'm thinking, yeah, this is all worthy and I'd like to save money on a computer. So by that stage, resigned to the idea that this is all perfectly good stuff, but it's never going to be thrilling. And then they mentioned that they'd supply the U.S. Navy with uh, technology whereby they could um, get this thing called the Blue Books, which was the basically the manuals of uh, every ship in the U.S. Navy, onto a phone. Uh, this is this is, would be commonplace now, but it wasn't at the time. And um, therefore, the engineers were able to go with the blueprints in constrained spaces and a backlit screen and actually be able to look at what they were supposed to be doing. And they had some data on how much time that had saved. But people aren't going to be interested in the Navy. Uh, probably saving lives, saving the US taxpayer lots of uh, money. And you think nobody's going to be interested. <laughs> Sometimes it takes an outsider to see that what you know what you think is routine might be absolutely riveting to somebody That's else. That's so true. I do find that a lot of people do hold their stories very much under the the sort of bushel of like oh nobody's going to be interested in that it's kind of like well tell me and then I'll know whether people are going to be interested in it it's fascinating how many times I've come across that I did the, the same thing when I was um I was training GE at the time Jeff Immelt had come out with this great big objective of telling technology stories across the organization so we were going from everywhere from transportation into appliances into healthcare with the whole mission of finding out the stories which was a great job actually and we had to go to every country and get every country manager from every GE operation into into the room we were in Germany which was a very dry audience I have to say because there was a lot of transportation heads there and we were trying to find a story and there was just nothing coming forward and then somebody went from healthcare oh do you remember when so-and-so borrowed that that scanner from us oh no it was it was the it wasn't the healthcare it was the airport guys with the airport scanners and it turns out that they'd used the scanner in Berlin Zoo to scan an elephant's foot because its toe was broken and there was no way of finding out where the break was or what had actually gone on with this elephant's foot without using this airport scanner technology. Now for me that was an insane story and of course it got on the front page of all the German national newspapers once we put the story together but just coming up with that story trying to drill that out of them was like you know pulling teeth. And you can understand it because their thinking well I've no doubt will have been along the lines of you know well how many people are going to have these blasted elephants um, and uh, you know therefore how can we map that onto this because they'll be thinking about a very linear process of you know how you build sales and it is perfectly true you know I've, I've searched the whole of Croydon and there are very few elephants um, <laughs> but um, it's 
uh, particularly not with broken feet. <laughs> not many airport scanners either. So this is all just, you know, you can see why, because there's no need, no elephants. <laughs> uh, so just kind of a weird tangent there. Uh, so, they, um, I love it. I love it. so, you know, I can see how they wouldn't necessarily see that actually the newspapers are as much about entertainment and about adding the local colour. What I always say to people in media training sessions, uh, every single one, I've got a slide, every single one <laughs> is that uh, journalists are storytellers Analysts will deal with the straight figures, the straight, uh, you know, with the readers with the vested interests, um, and they do a fine job, and that's not a criticism of anybody. But, uh, you know, journalists would be much more interested to hear about one elephant's foot than X amount of percentages that you can show me on a chart. Those are still good proof points, but, um, you know, they are. the elephant's they're foot's are good. Points, though. They're not the actual story. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's interesting. So we were talking to Charles Alton Jones from Business Age, and it was mm-hmm. just a brilliant chat. And one of the things he was talking about was the the headline of your emails when you're sending an email and everything else. How much do you talk to people about the sort of the headline mentality of making sure that you you think of something that's grabbing and captivating for people? Absolutely, I do. And you just said it yourself. You didn't say subject line, you said headline. And that's something I try to train people into thinking about, particularly when I, 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 there's one company I periodically I go and help their latest intake of young PR people so uh, yeah the headline uh, I always say think about the headline you know, start from a headline in fact I tell them to think about the whole thing as a uh, like a sort of sat nav process is an image I'm very fond of using uh, because uh, you start off with a sat nav you start off with your destination you plug in the destination you don't plug it in you type in your destination and the sat nav then tells you how best to get there uh, whereas so many end clients will say right I want a profile in the financial times you think oh do you uh, yeah because we want to sell more mobile phones or whatever it is and you think oh yeah because everybody goes and uh, when they're choosing a mobile phone they think who's been interviewed in the ft then so the pr people will advise on where how they're going to get to that objective but it's always having an objective in mind and the headline then becomes part of that echo chamber and it's easier to write if you know where it's tra- it's supposed to be a part of the journey too. Absolutely. That's such great advice. I love the sat nav analogy. I love that. That's brilliant. Yeah. And as well, we've we've spoken so much about the fact that, yeah, I mean, so many, I mean, we, we we talk about when it comes to kind of the PR approach and the agency approach and however you work in PR, so many clients will come and, and Jackie will have experienced clients like this. I mean, Demosa are very lucky. Demosa's clients are absolutely brilliant. We always love giving a shout out to Demosa's clients, but some clients Jackie's worked with in the past have been like, yeah, exactly what you said. Yeah, I want to be on Sky or I want to be at the Times. And it's like, well, why? Why? Why do you actually want to be there? Because actually, if you if you fully answer that question, you'll realise that actually, really, you don't really want to be there. You Unless, of course, there. they want to say something like, well, we're going for a round of funding and I really could do with a clipping from somewhere really legit like the Financial Times. Then at least you know why and you think, oh, now I've got someone who's thought this through. This is good. And you can uh, talk to them. But sometimes I, I a lot of my um, the time media training, I, I do try to sort of get people to listen to the PR people because uh, it's, uh, you know, that they are... PR consultants, not PR copy typists. So just saying, you know, right, splurge this out to so many journalists. So often you find that journalists will react very badly to that follow-up call, the the, did you get my press release call, which is, it is frustrating. It's, you know, you get too many of them, but you just know there's a client standing over them, uh, virtually at least, saying, you know, right, how many journalists have you spoken to? No, I didn't say hit the send button. I said spoken to. And uh, so they, they 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 have no choice because you've got to pay the bills in the end of the day. 
I think we struggle and I think I feel that media trainers and PRs should work together much more than they actually do. Most of my clients are uh, um, with the PR department I, uh, or external PR people. I uh, have a, a, to be honest, just in business uh, terms, if someone feels they're well enough media trained, they're probably not going to call me back in. Whereas if it's gone well with a uh, PR client, the PR people are going to call me back in for another client. So it just makes business sense to work with them. But also there are so many things that the trainer doesn't offer, like, you know, crisis management when things if something is misquoted or whatever it's really invaluable to have someone in that room to say and this is your resource here uh whether it's demoso whether it's somebody else who will uh, you know pick this up and it's never as almost never as bad as you think it is if you been, think you've been misquoted or whatever so uh yeah it's, it's, it's important to, work to rectify it online much more than you do so if somebody's written something factually inaccurate or something that you can actually rectify things, which is fantastic. Or you might even come to them, as some clients of mine have uh, had to come back to their people and say something like, yeah, we we are aware that that particular thing was print, uh, was uh, published and doesn't appear to have had you, you, you back in for a sanity check or for a, a right to reply. And the five people in the small chihuahua who read that blog um, will be very upset by it. But if we get them to do a, you know, start snowballing the thing, then it will grow and it will grow and it will grow. So we're just going to leave it. So there can be a strategy behind not commenting as well. And I think uh, this is where experienced PR people will already have a strategy in mind. And it's my job as a trainer just to remind the end client in that room that they've already got this resource. They're asking me as if they'd never uh, had this, uh, had these thoughts before. You know, what do you think you're paying for? Use them. Yes, use our brains rather than think that we're just a black book of contacts that we just phone up the FT and, you know, we are here to help. I mean, I really believe we can help shape a a company's course of of action in terms of, you know, the way that their communications are working. So you're absolutely right. What about that no comment? What about that time when do you train people on how to say no nicely? I try to train them into what well, I don't try to train them. Be positive, guy. Like my, my team and I <laughs> train them into honesty. If you can't comment on something because it's uh, share price sensitive, then you no intelligent journalist is not going to understand uh, that you cannot comment on that because of insider trading uh, yeah. legislation. Um, you can say things are company confidential. That's really no problem. It doesn't necessarily work for the journalist. The journalist might not like it. Or journalist, podcaster, whichever other sort of media professional we're talking about. But, um, you know, you don't work for them. You work for your company. So, you know, you say, I can't help you with that. But try to finish with, is there something else I can help you with? No comment always sounds like a cover-up. Yeah. Um, you know, if I would say, Jackie, are you actually bald under that hat? And you say, no comment. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, she's, she's, she's taken the hat off. She's, <laughs> I can confirm she's not bald under that hat. <laughs> However, if you just said no comment, you know what we'd all be thinking? We'd be thinking something's happened. She said, bits of hair stuck on the side. <laughs> And boy, am I glad that went right, because if by any chance you had been ill or something, and that, that could have been a really awkward, awkward conversation. <laughs> so, uh, Jackie's fine, everybody. Um, no, I've, I've else, please? <laughs> I can confirm. I can confirm that Jackie is totally fine. One <laughs> just to, just to uh, finish as well, because there's something really interesting that you mentioned there that I'm going to pick up on is my team and I, and we spoke about this before we went live, and this is, uh, I think, a, re- a really nice place to sort of uh, finish this podcast off as well. This is the bit where I said, please ask me about my team, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> this is the this is the bit, listeners, where 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 guy guy briefed me and went, please ask me about my team. Uh, but I am genuinely really interested. I, I when you mentioned that, it, it it never really occurred to me because obviously 
you know, I, I've sort of, you know, done appropriately done my research on, on yourself and sort of seen that you've worked in the industry for a good few years and sort of had brilliant success. But you mentioned that you now have a, a team of trainers and you even mentioned earlier in the podcast that you've even recruited an XMP to be on the team, which is uh, which is really, really exciting stuff. I mean, tell us about kind of why you made that move and like the benefits you've reaped from sort of expanding the team, if you like. Sure, you can only work in isolation for so long before you start stagnating. This is a better podcast because you're working with Jackie, and I'm sure Jackie would. Uh, I'm going to say I'm sure Jackie would agree with that. But that's not <laughs> quite what I meant. It's easier between the two of you because you can uh, throw ideas yeah, around. Yeah, throw off each other. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it started really when I thought uh, I'd better start adding a bit of camera work to my media training, and that didn't necessarily mean just me sitting there with my digital SLR, which I still do, which still popular I still uh, I did two sessions like that last week they went very nicely um, but I've been doing some um, corporate videos with a guy called Paul Angel who um, is also a documentary maker and so I said well would you mind doing a bit of media training and I started throwing his fees in as well with the quotes and stone me people started asking uh, yes please and it went down well because of course he does an awful lot more than uh, just operating the camera. He'll advise people. His motivation, if you like, comes from the fact that he's done so many of these videos for people and they're not all that good, but because he's just the guy behind the camera, he can't really say, no, you could do this, you could do this, you could structure that question in such and such a way. So that started to work really well. Meanwhile, I had uh, I was helping a guy with his written English, a guy called Niels Brabant, did a session with him. I'd known him for a little while. Little did I know, he had also run a training company and uh, sold it. And he just said to me, look, this is you're doing this is very good you should build this up and uh do something to keep you in uh, this lifestyle which you wish to become accustomed in your old age so i thought that made uh, perfect sense you know anything that gets me a lot more money made a lot more sense it hasn't yet but i started recruiting people i have uh, who have i got uh, sophie aldred who is uh, an actor um, who is um ex doctor who from many years ago also from just last year but um, that's uh, that's a lot of fun. Martin Croxall, who is a BBC uh, news uh, reader. Um, she was actually the person who ended up announcing to the nation that the Duke of Edinburgh had died. So uh, that was uh, her, I don't know whether it's a career high or a career low, really. But, you know, <laughs> to get out of that sort of news, but that's the job. Uh, so she's, uh, um, she helps with presentations because being a BBC person, she can't really do just media training. Who else have we got? Oh, Simon Danchuk, the um, uh, XMP, who you possibly remember when um, Gordon Brown made that famous quote uh, about that woman being a bigot, Gillian Duffy. And, uh, he was campaigning for Simon Danchuk at the time. Uh, so if you look at the uh, film of it, Simon Danchuk is the person ne- in the car next to him. But he's had a really interesting life. He does a lot of uh, business consultancy as well. Uh, so he can help on all sorts of things. like that. He's just started doing stuff with me or we've uh, start- agreed to work together in the last couple of weeks. I've got a couple of lifestyle people, um, a couple of ex- other camera people. They are all freelancers. Paul Floyd, you probably know, financial media, Marianne Rousson. Jackie Harper, who's done a lot of breakfast uh, television. Niels is doing stuff with me um, and helping pe- other people build their own companies. So there's a, uh, it's a Clapperton Co. UK will tell you uh, anything you need to know if you wanted to know about uh, who I work with. But uh, it's all about throwing ideas around. It's all about uh, building a team. And also, it's also, I suppose, as I get to hold on to just turned 58 uh, which is not dramatically old but uh, that'll lead to 68 eventually these things happen um you know i'm just 
going crazy here. Uh, by that stage, it would be nice if I had something to either pass on or that could run without me necessarily being full time. But uh, we'll see how that goes. Because what I have found, of course, is that uh, you know selling uh, a lot of trainers to people is a very different task to uh, being reactive and just waiting for the phone to go, which is sort of okay for a small lifestyle business, whether yeah. occasionally. It's it is a, it's a different world when you start having other other mouths to feed. Um, it is, but uh, <laughs> they're, they're they're not staff, so um, you know I, I, it's a matter of bringing work to them, and that makes you very popular. Did a session with uh, Martin a couple of uh, Martin Croxall a couple of weeks ago, and it was just brilliant uh, because it was you know throwing ideas around, and her she was coming up comparing people's speeches to Socrates and that sort of thing, and I was thinking, yeah, I, I tend to structure it like a James Bond film person, <laughs> uh, and uh, there was, it's just that sort of you get laughs out of that even, which is great, and. Uh, uh, Sophie is an actor. She's uh, she's also helped people really come out of themselves. There are skills that an actor will have about body language, things like that. That um, and you know how to place yourself, how to center yourself. That um, you just don't get if you haven't had that training or that experience. That's wonderful. I was going to say, oh, it's just such a shame you've already got an actor on your roster, or else I'd. Uh, <laughs> well, if, if, if enough <laughs> if, it, if enough work comes in, we might well have to have a conversation. <laughs> it's great. To, yeah, I might ask if you, ask if you knew any. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, given given the training I've or the lack of that I've exhibited in the last forty five minutes, I'd be like, "Hey, guy, how's it going?" And he'd be like, "Oh, no, yeah, great. Do you know any? Do you know any people who might be? There? Yeah, brilliant, guy. Thank you so so much. That's really really extraordinary. And I think actually that's a really nice place to finish as well because actually um, something, and we'll have to have you back on to sort of talk about you know how the business is expanding and how the landscape of media training is changing because actually I think the more perspectives you have from a larger team as the industry and as business and as technology starts to change the more voices you have in the room can only be a positive thing. So um, so thank you so much for for sharing that um, right, right at the end of, of this episode. And um, and if you'll have us, we'd love to have you back on. Would you love to come back on in a few months' time? I would love to. And thank you very much indeed. It's been an absolute delight. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you, Guy. Honestly, thank you so much. And listeners, thank you once again for joining us on the latest episode of The Rest is PR. A few T's and C's before we let you go, as I always do. So if you would like to get in touch with the podcast, you can do so in any number of different ways you can email us info at the rest is pr.com or info at the mozo.com we'll pick up on both those email addresses and visit both of those websites as well the rest is pr.com for all things the podcast and demozo.com for all things demozo and the brilliant work that the team at demozo are up to you can also get in touch with jackie or myself via linkedin we'll pick up messages on that the plethora of messages we get from from potential guests or people outlining topics they'd like us to discuss and you can also follow us at the rest is pr capital t capital r capital I, capital PR on Twitter. We would love to hear from you. And we will also link Clapton Associates, Clapton Media Associates, Clapton Media, get the name wrong. G- give us a, give us the plug, give us the link. It's right. officially called uh, Clapton Media Associates. It was pointed out to me a while ago, nobody is going to search Google for Clapton Media Associates. So all over the website, it's Clapton Media Training. But uh, if you've got uh, commissioning budget, I'd quite happily respond to, hey, you. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, guy, are you free? We will link all of that, all of the above, in the episode description. And thank you so much, guy, once again. It's really been a pleasure, Jackie. I was going to say the same time next week. It might well be. We're it might well be. Who knows? Who knows? Something will come out of the woodwork. But thank you so much once again for joining me, Jackie. It's always a pleasure, listeners. We will see you next week for another exciting episode of the Rest is PR. But for now, from Guy, from Jackie, and myself, it's bye for now. <laughs>